hit that note. Nice lick, though. Or is it a riff? We'll address that question in a bit. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 1 of our Jazz Backstory Podcast. In the words of Herbie Hancock, our maiden voyage. My name is Monk Rowe. I am the Joe Williams Director of the Phileas Jazz Archive at Hamilton College. In 1995, thanks to the efforts of Milt Phileas Jr., class of 44, and with the support of his friend, vocalist Joe Williams, a jazz oral history project was initiated. In a classic case of right place, right time, I landed the gig of conducting the interviews, and a dream gig it has been. To date, we have gathered 440 sessions with jazz artists whose careers span the 1930s to the present. What you will hear and experience in this podcast are moments drawn from these interviews that demand sharing. Moments particular to jazz performers that are poignant, informative, thought-provoking, and, on occasion, hilarious, all part and parcel of the jazz life. Periodically, we'll introduce a few jazz vocabulary terms, and we'll hear the occasional well-placed lick from our orchestra in a nutshell, a mighty two-piece house band. A lick like this one. That's a good one. Short and sweet. Or as Louis Jordan said, reet petite and gone. Well, let's begin where the jazz players began. Careers in music typically begin at an early age. Thanks to YouTube, we are now accustomed to child prodigies in the classical realm, an eight-year-old pianist nailing a Beethoven piano sonata, and the like. Decades ago, jazz prodigies were less common. The average parents would have looked skeptically on a career in that jazz music. And keep in mind the typical venue, a smoky nightclub, where the four-to-five-hour gig started at 9 p.m., Our episode one anecdotes are not about outstanding young talent. Instead, our interviewees share a musical epiphany, an aha moment that inspired an impressionable young person to start the process of being an outstanding talent. Bassist Keeter Betts is up first from our 1996 interview with a tale involving a simple errand, a parade, and an irresistible sound. And you started out on drums? I started out on the drums and I was uh, in the fifth grade. And we had an account, a little Italian store around the corner. My mother sent me to the store to get a loaf of bread and a bottle of milk. And Italian parade came by. And I came back about four hours later with the milk and the bread. And my mother liked to kill me because she was worried. She was, you know, one block away and I was going all over town following this. I realize now that it only takes a second for you to see something to impress you. 
and then you want to investigate what is this? And I was following this parade all around town, fascinated by that. And so I did get a whipping because at least I could have come back and said, well, I want to follow the parade instead of just going. But uh, what I realized that she, uh, I said, I want to play drums. After the whipping, I want to play drums. So I guess she figured, well, if he takes a licking and keeps on ticking, hey, man. <laughs> He really must want to do it. Press the beat on the seat of your pants, right? <laughs> Keeter led a highly successful career as a jazz bassist, performing with recording with Ella Fitzgerald, Charlie Bird, Cannonball Adderley, and surprisingly with me. In 1999, Keeter consented to play on my CD entitled Jazz Life. Here he is with a solo spot on a tune called The Gates of Swing. Now let's behave out there. No talking during the bass solo. Thanks, Keeter. Down the road, we may come back to the issue of bass solos and conversation. Musicians rarely think ahead about the future logistics connected to their instrument choice, but I can assure you that flute players are pleased with their decision when they watch bassists negotiating their instruments through an airport. Dave Valentine was a highly accomplished flautist, especially celebrated in the Latin jazz genre. From our April 2000 interview, Dave describes a romantic inspiration to embrace the flute. You start out in percussion? percussion. As a percussionist. My yeah. father was a merchant marine, and uh, he traveled to Brazil. Mm-hmm. He was on a, on a luxury liner passenger ship, like a cruise ship. He was a first-class steward, in fact. And uh, he brought, me, uh, brought back some bongos and congas, and little gourds and maracas, and I started playing when I was five. I started um, playing percussion. Mm-hmm. And by the time I was 10, 11, I was already playing in a band. I had timbales. I wanted to be like Tito Puente. Yeah. So uh, they had to pick me up and bring me back. I made like $10 a night. Um, but at, at uh-huh. that time, I was like a, a novelty, you know, yeah. playing, playing with men. I was a little kid on timbales. So. Yeah. Who directed you to the flute? Well, that, that happened, I wanted, to, believe it or not, I had no interest in the flute at all. Mm-hmm. I wanted to meet a girl. Na- her name was Irene. Oh. She had blonde hair and blue eyes. For me, the only girl in the South Bronx who had that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and I wanted to meet her. So I went up to her in class and I said, Irene, can you show me something on the flute? And, and she was playing a flute. Uh-huh. So she said, well, okay. And she showed me a, a C major scale. And uh, she gave me her flute, and it was kind of an erotic experience because I was playing on her flute. Yeah. I really started to. Right. Yeah, I'm getting close here. Yeah. (laughs) So I played the scale. (laughs) I played the scale immediately. 
immediately. And she went, oh my, it takes about a week to get, to get a sound. That's great. I'm going, yeah. yeah. So I borrowed a, a flute from school. Uh-huh. And I went home and I practiced, boy. I bought a Herbie Mann record. Learned the, the Joker. Coming home, baby. Coming home, baby. Came back a month later, and I and I said, I got her now. I'm going to get her now. And I played for her. And you know what? She wouldn't talk to me ever again. She said, go away. <laughs> I never want to see you. I took lessons for years, and you come in a month and get away from me. Yeah. And that's a true story. Wow. Yeah. And later on, of course, she came to the shows, and I always yeah. credit her credit her for. Uh, yeah, that's great. <laughs> true story. Well, you take inspiration wherever you can get it. You yes, know? definitely. Well, I, I'm glad because she she had like five kids, and she she yeah. got kind of hefty. Right. So maybe it was the right okay. choice not to pursue it. <laughs> That funky lick brings us to our episode one jazz vocabulary. Feel free to take notes. Perhaps we'll have an end of season one quiz. At the top of the show, we heard a brief but catchy podcast theme. I called it a lick, a jazz word describing a combination of notes and rhythms that an improvising musician spontaneously invents during a solo. Those listening might say, hey, nice lick. A fellow musician might take it, adapt it, and use it for their own. If a lick is repeated enough, it can grow into a riff and be played purposely by multiple players. The first Count Basie Orchestra made a living out of being a riff-based band. An astute arranger might take note of a particular riff, write it down, making it the core of a new tune. Thus, lick, riff, tune. The original lick creator may or may not know that they gave birth to a potential classic. Duke Ellington was well known for paying attention to the warm-up routines of his band members as they provided a constant source of potential tunes. watched a band set up and tear down for a gig? The drummers need to be the first to arrive, and will be the last to leave, burdened with more gear than all their bandmates. It requires an extra measure of musical passion, and you can hear it in the anecdotes of our next guests, drummers Sherry Maracle and Ed Shaughnessy, interviewed for the Phileas Jazz Archive in 2001 and 1995, respectively. I actually grew up in uh, Endicott, New York, okay. but born in Buffalo, yeah. and I, I go to Buffalo at least a couple of times a year. Some of my, my friends are still there, and a lot of my family was still there, but where I grew up was a town called Endicott, New York, and, sure. that, and Binghamton, of course you know where that is, yeah. and that was, that was amazing to grow up there. It was uh, Slam Stewart, the jazz bass player, lived there, right? and, and uh, every big band that there was came through came through town, Buddy Rich and Woody Herman and mm-hmm. Count Basie and I, I saw 
I saw all of those bands. And I was lucky to have a teacher that took me, because when I was 11, a teacher took me to see Buddy Rich and his Killer Force Orchestra. And that was, Oof. when I was 11, that, that really set, that's exactly what I wanted to do then, was just play the drums. And I never changed, ever, from that. Wow. You know. You yeah, anticipated a, a question mm -hmm. that oh, I was asked if there was oh, a, sorry. that's good, mm -hmm. uh, a okay. uh, kind of pivotal moment when, when you were young, seeing or hearing something. Yeah, actually, I remember. Um, well, that was definitely set me right, right off in my direction, and I literally never, ever thought of anything else. I remember telling my eighth grade teacher, "I know exactly what I'm going to do, and I have to move to New York." And I mean, really, I remember wow. having this conversation with uh -huh. this guy when I was 12 years old. But prior to that, when you were first allowed to take musical instruments, I went to the fourth grade or whatever and went up to the teacher, and I want to play uh, the trumpet. No, girls don't play the trumpet. Here's a metal clarinet, and gave me this thing to squeak and squawk on, and I was horrible, and he was horrible, and I, I just was, I quit. I was like, uh -huh. I don't want to play music. This is terrible. This teacher, you know. And then the teacher actually called the house. I think he was a little unsteady, uh, like unstable, and called my mother and said, "She's so talented." And I was really, I was terrible. I mean, I could barely make a sound on this metal clarinet. <laughs> but he begged for me to be in the school band, so I went back, and then really somehow. I started on the cello and played that for like three years, and then desperately one one day someone needed someone to hit the bass drum, and I was like, I'll do it, <laughs> you know, any chance to hit something. So I went back and played the bass drum, and then kind of just stuck with drums after that. Interesting. Yeah, and then, but then when I saw Buddy, that was that was uh, that was it. Mm -hmm. and, and at, at age eleven. Yeah. 11. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that's when you kind of started on the whole drum set. I actually uh, pleaded with my mother to buy me a drum set, which was like. There's just no way, you know, my daughter's not playing the drums kind of attitude. And uh -huh. But then, after my pleading and screaming, she, I remember she bought me a, I begged for a snare drum, which is the first drum you would get, and she came home, didn't, didn't know a drum from anything, and went to the music <laughs> store, and the guy told her, this is a snare drum, and of course, it was this big, like, funky, weird, brown tom-tom, and just the fact that she bought it for me, I, I, I t I've told her now, but I could never tell yeah. her for years it was the wrong drum. <laughs> Did your mother ever, uh, well, I shouldn't say ever, did, at what point did she become adjusted to the idea that you were going to become a professional musician? I think when, when she, you know, she would, she didn't come to all the high school performances, but some of them, and I, I think when I, I won't say when I, when I started to make money, but when I was, um, you know, when she heard people clapping. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, and she's like, oh, people's my daughter, oh, yes. But I, my, the funniest thing was, um, in New York when I got to sub in my first Broadway show, which is a good aspiration for musicians, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, a, yeah. it's a good job and everything, and it's fun. So I was subbing for one of my friends on the stage part to a, the Cabaret Revival, which was, I think it was in 89, and with, with Joel Gray, the last couple of years ago. And I, so it's my, the very first time I've ever done it. I have to memorize the music, so I, they wheel the all-girl band in their, you know, fishnet stockings and their skimpy little sequins costumes out on the stage. And I'm looking in the fourth row, and it's my mother going like this, like waving. And I'm like, oh my God, this is, this is not uh, Binghamton High School. Stop it. <laughs> you know, sinking yeah. in horror. Right, poking the people next to her. Yeah, That's is, my daughter. This is New York. This is Broadway. Don't even, you know, it was embarrassing. That's but, a nice story, but, but though. But cute. Yeah. Yeah, but it was cute. Oh, my father. first drum set? Yeah, I guess you know the story. Uh, uh, my dad, who was a... Teamster, he worked on the docks, and uh, he had loaned uh, $20 to somebody, and mm -hmm. uh, the, the fellow was up against it. He couldn't give him the $20, and he said to my dad, uh, 
doesn't your son like music? And he said, uh, oh, yeah, my kid, he just loves his music. He loves everything about music. And he's a, he was a mellow guy, my dad. So the guy said, well, look, I can't give you the 20 bucks, but I've got these two drums, a bass drum and a snare drum with a stand, you know, and a little pedal, and uh, I think a beat-up old cymbal. And he said, if would you take that in place of the 20 bucks? So my dad, we didn't have a car. We never had a car. He brought them home from New York on the subway. Oh, that went from New York to New Jersey. We didn't have a car. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, I appreciated how, nice. how he did that. Yeah, yeah, I brought him home and uh, and on the bus from the subway to home, right? And I can't explain it to you, but something fascinating happened when I o opened them up. It took me half a day to set the snare drum up on the stand, right, I think, <laughs> and put the pedal on. You know, I didn't know anything about drums. But uh, I had been fooling around with some uh, drumsticks that somebody had given me, and I wasn't enamored of the piano. And I saw a movie that influenced me a lot. You know, Blues in the Night. Do you ever remember a movie called Blues in the Night? Some people have mentioned it. Well, it's that, it's uh, it's a late 30s, like yeah. 39 or 40. But it's terrific because it's a jazz band movie with a couple of the ex-Dead End kids playing roles. And, oh, that movie turned my life around. I thought, that's what I want to be. I want to be one of those jazz guys mm -hmm. on the road, even though they had a terrible life in the movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it was glamorous, you know. Uh -huh. When they were yeah. hot, they were hot. And uh, I became a madman. I was practicing, even going to school, I was practicing four to six hours a day, which means, I mean, that's a real nut. That's a kid yeah. who's a nut. Yeah. But I loved every minute of it. It was like I'd really found something. I, I may God be my judge. I, I'm great. not varnishing it at all. Mm -hmm. It's not very glamorous sitting in an old beat-up cellar playing on old beat-up drums, but that is the way it started. I can recall giving Sherry Miracle a knowing nod when she mentioned the metal clarinet. I too experienced the joys of that instrument, typically the one that was left after all the others had been passed out. Even after I moved to the saxophone, I kept my metal clarinet. It's now a lamp, presently lighting my basement podcast studio. Ed Shaughnessy fashioned a spectacular career, playing in every imaginable jazz setting. If you watch The Tonight Show between 1972 and 1992, you heard our Ed after that other Ed, as in, Here's Johnny! Whatever drummers call that intro lick, a double paradiddle, triple flamacue. Ed Shaughnessy never flubbed it. Our last anecdote comes from the talented and irrepressible John Hendricks. Dubbed the James Joyce of Jive by Time Magazine, John was a master of the complex art of vocalese, which requires creative skills as a lyricist, poet, vocalist, and storyteller. This was one of those memorable sessions where a simple question prompted an unforgettable answer. When did you get the first idea of listening to an improvised solo and, <laughs> and doing what you do with it? I have to laugh because, because uh, I'm just thinking about all that stuff, you know, because yeah. I'm going to write my book, you know. Good. So I begin, I've started to think about that, and it's amazing. Uh, where I got the idea to write what, what is now known as Vocalese was when I was a kid, you know, it was in the middle of the Depression, and you, you have no idea how hard times were in the Depression. I mean, people talk of hard times now. B these are luxury hard times. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. 
<laughs> you know, compared to those yeah. times. Uh, Red Fox uh, had something in his act about that. He said, uh, times were so hard that one day my father was sitting on the front step and he hollered up and said, Martha, the garbage man's coming. And she said, tell him to leave three cans. <laughs> Oh, that's hard. <laughs> that is hard. That's right. Times were tough, and we that there were there were my father, my mother, and fifteen children. Twelve boys and three girls in 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 the depression. So it was very very difficult. So I didn't have a nickel to buy popcorn and a dime to go in, in, into the movie theater. Mm -hmm. You know, with all my brothers and sisters, you know, my father just couldn't afford to give everybody a dime uh, to get in and a nickel to buy popcorn. Yeah. So we all had to find some way of uh, finding 15 cents on Saturday to go to the movies, you know. And so my brothers would go out and what we call junk, you know, they would, they would go junking, which mm -hmm. was, they'd, they'd walk through the alleys at that time. Every, every street had a, had a back part, you know, which was the alley. And, and uh, people would throw away things, uh, papers, uh, old lamps that broke, you know, all these they, they would pick up mm -hmm. in, a, in, a, in a wagon or a cart and take them to the junkyard. And uh, you'd be surprised how, how everything's worth something. Yeah. And this guy would buy the, the things off of them maybe for 25 cents. Well, there, there's a quarter you got, oh. you, you, you can take somebody else to the movies, and you got a nickel for the popcorn, you know. So uh, we used to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, I used to go into the men's room of the bus station or the train station, and when somebody was going to put a nickel in, into the in, into the slot to go to the lavatory, I'd say, wait a minute, you know. Just you know, just give me the nickel. And I would crawl down underneath, underneath open the door, and, and make... 15 cents after I did that three times, I would go to the movies and have a, have a nickel for, you know, for the popcorn. Then I, then I found out something else. People played the jukebox mm -hmm. and it cost a nickel. So I loved all that stuff that was on the jukebox and I could, I could hum most of those songs. So I said, why don't you learn, why don't you learn those songs, you know? And I, so I, I would learn the solos, you know? Uh-huh. And then I would stand in front of the jukebox, and when somebody was going to play, I said, "Wait a minute! Don't don't put the nickel in yet. What are you going to play?" And they would say, "Yard Dog Mazurka" by Jimmy Lunsford. I said, "Don't put it in there. Give it to me, and I'll sing it." Oh man! <laughs> and they couldn't resist that, yeah. you know. So they would give me the nickel, and I would sing. <laughs> I would sing the whole thing solo and all, and the whole place would be. Oh, that's fantastic! And how old were you then? I was about thirteen. Oh man! And I would earn enough money, and, and then I would go to the movies. You know? And I forgot about that. Yeah. Until I I, I wrote sing a song of Daisy, and I said, Hey, yeah, I know how to do this. Yeah. <laughs> Debuting in 1957 with Sing a Song of Basie, Lambert, Hendricks, and Ross set the standard for all jazz vocal groups to come. We will hear from Mr. Hendricks again in future episodes. One more jazz vocabulary term, the break. 
A jazz set always leads to one. If this had been a gig in a smoky nightclub, we might step outside for some air, head to the bar for a taste, or check to make sure someone is collecting the cover charge at the door. A quick thank you to our orchestra in a nutshell, to Romy Bertel for interview transcriptions and content advice, and to Hamilton College's library and IT services. Episode 2 will offer additional Where It All Started stories from Kenny Deverne, Nat Adderley, Annie Ross, and Junior Mance. I hope you'll tune in. See you on the flip side.